It's April 30th. Our topic this morning is going to be inclination. And my son Judah is going to read a scripture to us. This is Psalm 119, starting in verse 41. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statues before kings, and I will not be put to shame, for for I delight in your commands, because I love them. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. Amen. That's awesome, Judah. David said that he'd walk about in freedom because of the law of the Lord. He said that he'd lift up his hands to the commands that God gave, taking an oath before God to walk in them. That is pretty awesome stuff, isn't it? This morning I wanted to talk about inclination of the heart for a reason. Y'all can go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 5. You know what an inclination is? Do you have an inclination towards something? Get this. The act of inclining, that's not very helpful, is it? Or the state of being inclined, a bend or a tilt. One of the things that you could say if something has an inclination is it has a bend or a tilt. Another one is a deviation or the degree of deviation from the horizontal or the vertical. In other words, a slant. Seems like two complex ways to say the very same thing. Bend, tilt, or slant. An inclined surface. Oh, thank you. That helps a lot too, right? A slope. A bend, tilt, slant, or slope. A tendency towards a certain condition or character. You have a tendency to do something. A bend, tilt, slope, slant, or tendency. Then the last definition, the one that hit home for me. A characteristic disposition to do, prefer, or favor one thing rather than another, a propensity. We find out that inside of man are certain inclinations. You have a bending, a tilting, a slope, a slant towards something, a propensity to do something rather than something else. That's within us. And in Deuteronomy 5, you will turn to verse 22. It says, These... I'll wait for you to get there. Deuteronomy 5, 22. Tell me when you're there. There. Deuteronomy 5.22 These are the commands the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud in the deep darkness, and He added nothing more. Then He wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to Me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and elders came to Me. And you said... The Lord our God has shown us His glory and His majesty, and we have heard His voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a man can live even if if God speaks with him. But now why should we die? 
This great fire will consume us and we will die if we hear the voice of our Lord God any longer. What a strange idea. From the very beginning, man was made to dwell with God, made to walk with God. In the cool of the morning, Adam walked with God. But a problem happened. Something came that separated man from God. Man's desire, his inclination, his leaning, his slant, his slope, his propensity to choose something other than what God wants for him has caused man to feel separated from God. They're there. There's a mountain blazing with fire. It's the glory and majesty of God. And they are scared to be in His presence. I have noticed with some of my relatives that are lost, they'll call me and they say, hey, please pray. Why? There's no God? Why pray? It's not because they don't think there's a God. They say, Eric, I'd like you to pray for me for this. Please pray that so-and-so... Why? That's a measure of faith, isn't it? That, you could even say that's a measure of faith in God. Asking me to pray to God for them. Who is it that they don't have any faith in? Them. They feel like they are separated from God because there's a sin issue that has not been dealt with in their lives. They feel like it's okay for me to go talk to God on their behalf, but they cannot. They are separated. Israel standing here, God is in the distance glowing with fire on a mountain and they ask for something. They say, For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. This is even a desire to obey God. It's a desire to be pleasing to God. They just don't want to have to deal with God face to face. Why? Why is that? Why do people admire God from a distance and say, that's good for you, Steve. I love what it does in your family, but somehow they're different. Religious people often act as if others outside of their church are bad, are different, are downcast, are wrong. The truth is we all have the same bent, slant, slope, leaning towards what is evil. Everybody from Adam right on down, every human being has. But some begin to realize, begin to understand that God is drawing them into a place. Some will approach the mountain and some only cry out for others to do so. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me. The Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Why is that good? Why is it good that they're scared to approach God? Why is it good that they're crying out for someone else to go to God on their behalf? Perhaps the Lord was laying a foundation. Perhaps He was building something so that one day people would begin to realize we need an intercessor. We need an intermediary. Somebody to lay His hand upon God and me and make peace between us because my inclination of my heart, my very thought is wrong so much of the time. I need somebody to fix my problem. Job cried out in Job 9, only that God were a man, somebody that I could question face to face, then I would speak up without fear of Him. But as it now stands, I cannot. If somebody would lay His hand upon me and God, somebody to remove God's terror from me, then I would speak up. He was crying out for an intermediary, an intercessor. 
This morning, the prophecies that came forth was about God breaking down that barrier. About God removing what separates you from God. About God allowing someone to lay His hand upon you and Him and make peace. Be reconciled, the Word was. Listen to how God responds. Everything they said was good. And then verse 29. What's your Bible say? Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear Me and keep all My commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. What a strange expression. Oh, that their hearts were inclined to fear Me. When you picture God speaking, when you think of the Ancient of Days in this glowing fire from a mountain, doesn't it seem a bit peculiar that God would say, oh, that their hearts would fear Me. This is not Shakespeare writing with parchment and quill. What is this, oh, that their hearts would fill me, fear me? Kind of like Isaiah writes, ah, sovereign Lord. It's an expression. It's an expression of longing. And what is he longing for? He's longing for their hearts to be inclined to fear me and keep my commandments. And why? Why does he want their hearts to be bent towards him, slanted towards him, having a propensity for him? Why? so that it might go well with them and their children forever. You need to understand something. If your view of God is God laying down a ruler saying, you do not measure up and I'm going to smash you for it, your view of God is wrong. The only reason that He ever gives you any standards to measure your life by is so that your heart will be inclined towards Him. So that you will begin to see the kind of things that He likes. The kind of things that He wants from you. By the way, what is the setting? What has just happened here? We're standing at a mountain blazing with fire because God has done something. He has spoken in an audible voice to a nation. And what did He tell them? These are the Ten Commandments. Remember the movie, Charlton Heston's on a mountain, he gets a new hairdo while he's up there, comes down with a glowing face. What did God say? What did God tell him on the mountain? I'm teaching my family these right now. Think about this. How long have you been a Christian? Don't you answer me out loud. Can you name these? And I'm fixing to say, can you name them? Can you get them in order? How long have you been a Christian? Say, oh, well, it's written on my heart. I'm just led by the Spirit. Then can you name them? How led by the Spirit are you? Can you name what I'm fixing to say? You shall have no gods beside me. One, right? What's two? You shall have no graven images. Right? You all nervous? Sweating? Worried that I might call on you? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Three. What's the fourth? Sabbath. Honor the Sabbath or honor God by keeping the Sabbath. Five. Honor your father and mother. Again, that it may go well with you. Six. Anybody got six? Six is you shall not murder. Seven. Shall not commit adultery. Shall not steal shall not bear false witness, shall not covet anything that your neighbor has. Now let me ask you something. This is the Ten Commandments. We've pulled them off of our walls and our schools. We've talked about dancing and freedom in Christ. In Christ is the fulfillment of all of these laws. I agree with that. How did Jesus say you sum up the law? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and... 
Could it be that that's why the first four commandments deal with your relationship with God? God wants nobody in your life besides Him. One. What's second one? God does not want you to try to contain Him in an image. Now, you may not have an idol in your life, but has your doctrine become your box that God lives in? The way that you word your phrasing about God, the way that you understand, is it a container that nice and neatly fits God into certain categories in your life never to move away from? How about misusing the name of the Lord? We think that that's just cussing. Saints, there is nobody more guilty of misusing the name of the Lord than charismatic Christianity. You know what the worst misuse of the name of the Lord is? The Lord told me to do this, and then the Lord told me to do that, and then I didn't like it. I mean, the Lord told me to do this instead. Windshield wiper, back and forth, misusing the name of the Lord, laying at His feet your weaknesses. Not saying, Lord, I need help with weaknesses. Blaming your weaknesses on Him. Well, then what do you do with the Sabbath? Could it be that the Lord wants you to know that all of your work is done in Him? Who worked hard on the Sabbath? Who are the only people who worked their tails off on the Sabbath? The priesthood. What were they doing? Intermediaries for mankind. Teaching people about atonement. Teaching people about God. What does God want for you? Love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. How do you do that? You put nobody in your life above Him. You refuse to try to allow Him to be contained. You let Him move in every area of your life in any way. You refuse to invoke His name where He hasn't invoked His name. And you let all of your work be done for Him. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Well, what about the next six? All of these six tell you how to relate to your fellow man. All of them. Are these bad? Is this wrong? What did God want? What did He say right after He gave these? Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear Me that they would keep My commands. Then they would live in the land and I would bless them and their children forever. God's desire is that mankind would know what it takes to please Him. That mankind would yearn for Him and have a bending, a slant, a slope towards Him. And He started with one nation above every other. Turn with me to Genesis 8. Y'all knew it wouldn't take me long to get to Genesis, huh? If you've had that feeling in your life that there was nothing that you could do to measure up, you've misunderstood God's righteousness. His righteousness is not there to keep you from feeling as if you could measure up. His righteousness is there to show you how you can live. That's a big difference. Condemnation says you can't. You never will. You're beneath. You're below. You will never measure up. Conviction says you are capable of so much more. You can live holy. You can live right. This is what I want from you, Nick. This is what I want. Condemnation is just the opposite. We say in Christ there is no condemnation. The truth is, there should never have been any condemnation. Even those that lived outside of the framework of Jesus' atoning sacrifice were longing for a day when God would make it right. All God wanted from them was to show faith, to trust Him, to try to live in a way pleasing to Him. Then in Christ, all doubt's been removed. Because if there was ever a statement that said, if you do this wrong, this will happen to you, Christ took the, this will happen to you. In Genesis 8, we find the same problem with all mankind. 
Genesis 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all the living creatures as I have done. All mankind, God said. Now mind you, when did this occur? When is He saying this? He said it once in Genesis 6. He said, my heart is filled with pain. God said His heart was filled with pain because every thought and inclination of man's heart was evil. So what's He do? <laughs> Wipes out the whole thing. Right? Clean slate. We're going to start again with who? Noah, Ham, Shem, Japheth. Noah has an altar and a sacrifice immediately after the flood. And what does God say? All mankind, every thought, is evil from childhood. He started over with three, and those three were flawed, just like you are. Actually, eight, but flawed, just like you are. All man's always had the same problem. We have an inclination towards something that is wrong. It's in us. It's from birth. Matthew and I were joking the other day. You put ice cream sundaes in a third grade classroom, second grade classroom. Lord, let's do it in kindergarten. Give everyone the exact same thing. Watch the children. The very first thing they will do is try to hurry and eat so they can get their neighbors or take their neighbors from them. Our inclination is towards what's wrong and what God wants is to impress upon us righteousness. He wants to show us and empower us how to live as He would want us to live. Jesus summed it up by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor is yourself. Is it enough simply to read the summary and not care about the rest of the details? Isn't that a little bit like reading the last chapter of a book and surmising that you understand the whole thing? Wouldn't it be better to know what he had memorized? Wouldn't it be better to know what his very nation's culture was founded on? If God thought it important enough to announce with fire from a mountain so that an entire nation saw him, isn't it important enough to study? To know? In the book of Deuteronomy, we're comfortable with certain kinds of teaching. Those of you that have known me for a while know I teach about shadowing types all the time, don't I? We're all comfortable with the ministry of shadowing types as it relates to the law. Looking at Deuteronomy 1, you can turn there. I'm not going to read it to you. I'm just going to tell you about it. You can glance over it while I tell you. You see an anointed man, Moses, sending out twelve other men to witness what they've seen and heard. They brought with them fruit of the land to demonstrate the truth of their message. Come on, guys. we got one anointed man sending out twelve, witnessing to what they've just seen and heard, and they're bringing with them fruit from that land to demonstrate the truth of their message. Can you see Jesus in that? Of course you can. You can see Jesus sending out twelve anointed apostles witnessing to what they have seen and heard, carrying with them fruit from the land. Paul said that his power, his ministry, did not rest on wise and persuasive words, but on a demonstration of the Spirit's power. That was the fruit from the land. We're all comfortable with that kind of teaching from Deuteronomy, aren't we? I point to something in the Old Testament and then show you how it relates to something in the New. We're all good with that, aren't we? How about Deuteronomy 2? You see the people of God 
battling the descendants of the Nephilim. What's Nephilim mean? Fallen ones. They're giants. While in the midst of false brothers, Deuteronomy 2 has them battling with Nephilim. The whole time they're in the territory of the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Moabites. People related to them. Supposed to be calling on the same God, but not because of a perverted faith. During these 40 years, they were putting to death the old man that had no faith. It's not hard to see the church age in this sense, is it? We're dealing with the enemies of God, the fallen ones, the entire time trying to put off the old self, striving for what God's called us to be in the midst of false brothers. That's not hard to see, is it? The ministry of shadow and types. Moving to Deuteronomy 3, we see the remnant of Israel, the Transjordanian tribes. Reuben, Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh. They received what was promised. They come right up to the promised land. They get their inheritance. They're the first of Israel, the first remnant to get what was promised. And what does Moses tell them they have to do? By the way, they got that, that promise, under the administration of the law and under Moses. And what does Moses say you have to do? This is good. I'm going to give you the land and I'm glad. But you cannot set down your sword. You cannot camp here. Leave your families and you go fight until every member of Israel has received what was promised to them. And how were they going to get it? Under the administration of Joshua, whose name is Yahweh saves. It's not hard to see the remnant of the Jewish apostles, the remnant of Israel, men having received what was promised, seeing it in the law, then teaching others about the administration of Joshua, working for all of Israel to be saved saying that they themselves wished that they could be cut off, that Israel would be saved. It's not hard to see that in that story, is it? In fact, you can see Jesus on every page. You can see the Acts of the Apostles on every page. In Deuteronomy 4, we see the promise of keeping God's Word, the law, would display wisdom and understanding to the other nations. That they would see the presence of God in His people by their obedience to the Word. Again, it's not hard to see the church age, is it? How do people know that you're a Christian? By the way that you live out His Word. By the way that you love. Not hard to see Jesus in this through the ministry of shadows and types. And all of our understanding of these shadows and types and all of our looking into the law and the Word of God and seeing something that relates to the New Testament and our lives in it, We can't miss something. The reason that God gave these books, He says in Deuteronomy 5, was because He wants the inclination of man's heart to be for Him so that He can bless man. It was never intended to be a system of righteousness. It would never be something that salvation was attained by. Abraham was saved before the law was ever given. Paul goes through great lengths to show that. Salvation was attained through trusting but God wanted to change the inclination of our hearts. He wanted to make it so that the foundation that we had to build on was not one that was slanted in the wrong direction all of the time. He wanted to display something about His character so that we would understand Him. So why give Ten Commandments followed by 603? The ten were subheadings. Subheadings. All of them are subheadings. They show you how to relate to God and how to relate to man. 
I said, but what do you do with all of those horrible, gory, bloody things? What do you do with all of that? Well, Christians, what do you do when you read the New Testament and see that a woman can't pray or prophesy unless her head is covered? What do you do with that? Requires some work, huh? You have to read. You have to pray. You have to seek God and say, Lord, I see what this says. How did this apply to me in America in the 21st century? When you read, a woman can't have braided hair or gold or jewelry. Come on, saints, I see some gold and jewelry in here. What do you do with that? Christians always have the responsibility. Lovers of God have always had the responsibility to read this Word and decide one crucial thing. To me, in my life, in this generation, at this time, what does God require of me? What is He trying to teach me? When Paul said, I want all of you to greet one another with a holy kiss, and I walked in here today and none of you kissed me. Are you all sinning then? Are you all condemned and outside of God's kingdom? Is that all you see with that word? This is just a ruler to show how how far I fall short. Is that really what you see? Or can you look and see God had a righteous intent? And when Paul wrote, I want all of you to greet one another with a holy kiss, he's saying, I want you to greet one another warmly. Is that such a stretch? If this was one long scroll rolled out from beginning to end with no divisions between it, would you go back and insert the divisions to make yourself comfortable? To avoid having to look and see how does this apply to me today? We don't do it with the New Testament. Why do we do it with the Older Testament? Oh, that word older, isn't it? In Luke 10, let's turn there. Oh, yeah, cold, huh? In Luke 10. Y'all turn to Luke 10. Y'all mad at me already? Luke 10. God saw a problem that He wanted to fix. The foundation in man's heart is slanted in the wrong direction. I want to begin to change it. Have you all noticed something about new Christians? Some of you remember me when I was a new Christian. When I was a brand new Christian, I did things like drive to my friend's house, go through their pantry, looking for things that were fermented because I believed that was wrong. If you're going to my pantry today, you will see I no longer suffer from that problem. I literally stood at a man's sink and poured out everything that was fermented in his house down his sink while he cried standing right there because that's what I believe God required. Matthew and I took our wardrobes, anything that we thought showed too much skin. Now that's funny today. We don't show skin for another reason. We throw it away, threw away. We broke our CDs in the parking lot of our apartments. Anything that reminded us of the stain of the world, we removed. Matthew and I were watching a movie called The Robe. And at some point in the movie called The Robe, an old black and white movie, Matthew felt convicted. And while Jennifer and I were sitting on the couch staring at the TV, he walked to the front of the room and turned off the TV. Why? Why are new Christians like this? Because God has stamped upon our hearts right away a desire to be holy, a sense, a profound sense of what is right and what is wrong. And we do what all human beings do. We misapply it. Just like Israel misapplied the law. 
because we have a profound sense of what is right and wrong, all of a sudden we're adding to and taking away from what God has really said. We're striving to be holy and we build fences around fences around fences. God said, don't commit adultery. So Matthew and I said we won't even wear clothes that might cause somebody else to look at us in a wrong way. God never told us to do that. But it was a right desire in our heart taken to a wrong extent. Can you have no mercy for a nation that was actually given this law from fire from above and maybe they applied it wrong? What was God really after to change the inclination of a heart? That's what He's after. Luke 10, we have an expert in the law. It says on one, Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked. By the way, teacher? That's rabbi. Jesus wore a title. Rabbi. He had Chaldean. He had disciples. Every other rabbi in ancient Israel, you had to apply and get his approval. He judged you. He looked at you to decide, does he have what it takes to be just like me? And you might be found wanting. In fact you probably would be found wanting. A rabbi could only take 30 or so students at a time. That meant the vast majority of young Israeli boys that might look up to a rabbi as a hero were disqualified. And yet Jesus stands up and cries, if anybody is weary or heavy laden, let him come to me. Rabbi Jesus doesn't turn away anybody. If you've got a vision of God that is Him holding out a ruler, showing that you don't measure up, trying to beat you down, you have the wrong vision of God. The only ruler in His hand is showing what you are capable of doing. Do you understand? My wife and I have vastly different views of what a budget is. I see it as horrible constriction. Sweetheart, this means I can't do this and I can't do that. It's like bondage. I hate it. It shows how much money we don't have. That's all I see in it. Is that a true facet of a budget? Sure, it's one of them. You know what she sees? Look, I'm free to spend this much in this area. Look, we have money for this, 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 this. Both perspectives are right. It just depends on where you choose to dwell. Guys, when we take a truth about the Word and we make it the only truth, we pervert it to an error. Have you not seen that with the prosperity gospel? We just read. We just read in Deuteronomy 5 that God desired to prosper them and their children. So is prosperity true? Absolutely. If you focus on it to an unhealthy level, does it become error? Yeah, you'll want the dope dealer's car. You'll send somebody $1,000 for no other reason than you want back $7,000. you will build a big ministry and have a funny suit and a funny name. Pity cent. Whatever. You take a truth and you make it the only absolute and you have erred. The law is a big subject. So this expert in the law wants to test Jesus. He says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's the subject at hand? How do I get saved? How do we conquer death? How do I live forever? That is the subject. What is written in the law, Jesus said. What a strange thing. Why did Jesus say that? Why didn't He say just be led by the Spirit? 
deafening silence in here. Why didn't he say, well, you believe on me, believe that I'm going to be raised from the dead, confess me with your mouth, and you'll be saved. Because it wasn't written. It wasn't written yet. And all of those things presuppose something. A foundation and knowledge in the law that was supposed to incline your heart towards God. That was its intent. It wasn't sacrifices God wanted. He wanted a broken and contrite heart. He wanted a heart that leaned towards Him rather than away from Him. What is written in the law? How do you read it? This has always been one of my favorite passages. So many times people say, oh, the Bible's been interpreted so many different ways. It's been translated. It's been this. It's been that. And Basically, the inference is, it's either too big and complex for me to understand or there's so many interpretations, how can you know what is right? I love to do what Jesus just did right here. Turn the book around and say, how do you read it? We have an obligation to examine, find out for ourselves how this Word relates to you in your life today, right now. You have an appointment, a destiny with God. Acts 17 teaches us that He determined where you would live. He set boundaries for you because He's trying to get you to reach out and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. He wants your heart to show an inclination towards Him. You have an obligation, saints, to read all of His Word and decide how it applies to you right now, today. Say, Eric, our commentary is good. Yes, I probably read more of them than any of you do. But you know what the problem is? It's one man's point of view at one time at a certain place in history living where he lives affected by what he's affected by. What happens when it's written in the 13th century from a guy who lives in a monastery and I live in the 21st century in Amsterdam? The word might apply differently, might it not? What if I'm in Africa? My culture is grass skirts and no upper clothing. It's different, is it not? Standards of modesty, cultural norms, are they not different from person to person? Well, is this an American gospel only? Is it a southern American gospel only? My friends at the BSM would like to change our gospel to fit American South living. Let's do away with wine. I know it says wine or other fermented drink, but it shouldn't say that because we all know wine's bad. Can we really do that? Because America had a problem with prohibition. Can we really do that? No, but at least they're trying to decide how it applies to them. That's a whole lot better than just closing that entire three quarters of the book and saying it doesn't apply. Thought I was just going to slam the Baptist, didn't you? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Basically, the two large subheadings that the other ten follow in, that the next 603 expound on. Right? What is God looking for? What was the law given for? To incline people's hearts towards Him. It was to produce a response, an action. He wants you to do the things He would do. Salvation's always come one way. Trusting God enough to act in a certain way. Get rid of the formulas. Throw them out of your mind. They don't work. 
You may have answered three points in a poem to get saved. You may have read it right out of a tract. But what happens when the person sitting on your left did not? Do you invalidate his experience, his life, his fruit, his testimony with God because it didn't fit your formula? Saints, there is no formula. God has always been looking for one thing, a heart that is inclined towards Him enough to act a certain way. What was our subject here? How does eternal life come? What did Jesus say? How do you read the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. The church says, believe this and you will live. Jesus said, do this and you will live. What a huge difference. The book of James says, I will show you my face by what I do. Incidentally, I will show you my face by what I do. Where do you think that kind of idea comes from? What book was James reading? He's reading all Paul's letters, right? No? When it was written, Paul's letters weren't written. So what's he talking about? He had a foundation in the law. And you know what the law taught? To do certain things. In fact, let's read this New Testament parable and see if we can see the law in it. Would that be okay? I figure if it's okay for me to read the law and give you shadows and types of the New Testament, I ought to be able to read the New Testament and give you shadows and types of the law, right? It's kind of reverse engineering, isn't it? But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. Some of you have had hard lives. It's been amazing. When I hear your testimonies, I think, my God, they're still here. That's amazing. That's amazing in and of itself. How on earth did so-and-so survive this or that? This man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The Jewish culture taught that Jerusalem was the closest place on the planet to God. Why might they have thought that? Because that was the place, the one place on all the planet earth where God picked and said, my name will dwell there. So they saw it as high, lifted up, close to God. Jericho, however, was the first kingdom that fell to Israel. It symbolized all the strength of the world. How was it conquered, Jericho? It was conquered by might and sword, wasn't it? It was conquered by superior military siege, wasn't it? No, when God wanted to show how His people's kingdom would overcome the world's kingdom, He simply had them obey His command, being quiet when they were supposed to be quiet, and speaking when they were supposed to speak. After seven days of this, the stronghold of the world collapsed. This guy is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He is on the right road and he is headed the wrong direction. Some of you have been there all of your lives. You are in church. You're on the right road. You're hearing about God. Hear the preacher talk. You hear the thing said. But you're sliding in the wrong direction. And God is a good God. He loves us. And so look what He does. When He fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped Him of His clothes, beat Him, and went away leaving Him half dead. Eric, I thought you said God was a good God. Friends, would you rather be beaten or burned? You'd rather be half dead or all the way dead? 
This was a strategic intervention in this man's life. His life was on a slow spiral down the porcelain throne. And God put a stop to it. And the way that He put a stop to it was by allowing hardship in his life that would give him a chance to see mercy. Have you ever wondered why? Why is my life so difficult, God? Why is it me? Why do I have to do this? Why are my kids this way and so-and-so's aren't? Why me? Over and over and over. Maybe God's just looking for a way to show you power and mercy. If you didn't have hardship in your life, when would you ever get a chance to see God's mercy? When would you get a chance to see God's power? He's trying to change the inclination of your heart. If your heart is sloping towards Jericho and He needs it to slope towards Jerusalem, He might hit it with a hammer. My heart was one time inclined towards a woman that I love very much. Remember that first commandment was? You should have no other gods besides me. You can be so inclined towards something that your heart has an unhealthy leaning towards it instead of God. And He will hit it with a hammer. You wonder why young people have broken hearts so often? Because God's trying to fix them. A broken and contrite heart He will not despise. He will not turn His back on you because you're broken. That's right where He can rebuild you. Quit whining and complaining about the hardships in your life and rejoice in them. The worse your heart's been broken, the better He can put it back together. It was screwed up to start with. Say, oh, you're a preacher. You can't talk like that. I'm not a good preacher yet. (laughs) Screwed up. That's Hebrew for an inclined plane wrapped around a screw. They stripped Him of His clothes, beat Him, went away leaving Him half dead. How do you get half dead? where most of the church is right now. they got one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom. Half dead. Useless to both. Getting ready to get vomited. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Now that's almost funny. A priest happened to be going down the road. By the way, what does a priest do? You're a nation of priests. What do you do? You intercede for people. You are supposed to be learning about God so that you can help reshape people's hearts so that you can lay your hand upon them and upon God and show them that they can be reconciled. He just happened to be going that way. Somehow I don't think it was just happenstance. What happens? That quote, what's necessary for evil to prevail? Good men to do nothing. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. What's funny is it looks like it's the man who's beaten's hour of greatest need, doesn't it? No, he's in the process of rebuilding. He's really not in such a bad place when you think about it. The priest, however, just missed his moment of opportunity. And his heart is going to stay hard. One is broken and ready to be rebuilt. The other thinks that he has no need of repair and is on his way to hell. Why was the law given? To change the inclination of hearts. To show us the right way that we can live. Were the priests commanded to do anything particular about people they saw in need? 
Well, I don't know, Eric. We need to read that, huh? Hang on to your hat. Priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite. Uh-oh, there's another special designation. When he came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. When God's people pass by on the other side, leaving people hurting and broken, they do themselves and that person a disservice. God's will is not always done, saints. It only gets done when you do it. If God wants to split the Red Sea, He's got to raise up a man like Moses to stretch out His hands. What happens if Moses is scared? Oh, God will work with him. He'll try and encourage him. It might take 40 years and you may have to appoint a brother to come help him. But God's going to work with him. What happens if he doesn't do it? Well, I guess God has to raise up somebody else. Don't leave your work for God undone. There are people dying, waiting for your help. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, what are Samaritans? These are half-breeds. These are despicable, dog-like people in Jewish eyes. You know why? Because they were supposed to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. That's what they're being accused of. They're a noble race, Jews descended from the line of Abraham, but they corrupted themselves with Assyrians. They corrupted themselves with the people of the world. I find it so funny that most of my behavior is not judged harshly by people in the world and is judged very harshly by people in the church. The priest and the Levites will pass you by on the other side because they think you're dirty. But the Samaritans, the people that everybody else thinks are dirty, will love you for loving them. Isn't that amazing? Why are church people so hard on other church people? You don't think that's true? Go to whatever your denominational headquarters is and open a bottle of wine and tell them you want to do a Seder meal. Drunkard, wine-bibber, loose-living. Really? Do the same thing at my workplace? They all smile. They're happy you brought wine. Why is it that the religious people have a problem with everything? Why? This Samaritan is here. We had a Levite trained, trained to do the will of God. Did he do it? We had a priest trained and appointed. He didn't even get an inheritance in the land because the Lord was his inheritance. He was supported by all the other people of Israel for one purpose, to do the work of God. Pass by on the other side. But the Samaritan, the guy that's not worth anything, he's the one who's going to stop and do God's will. Why? Because he took pity on him. But where do these ideas come from? Surely the Levite would have seen in the law what he was supposed to do, right? Surely the, the priest would have seen in the law what he was supposed to do. Turn to Leviticus 19. Keep your finger here. What happens when the people of God don't do what they're supposed to do? Tell them Leviticus 19. Verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, Do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over the vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Look at verse 33. When an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself. 
For you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. How about 25? Turn to 25. Do you mind if I read you a few of these? Leviticus 25, starting in verse 35. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would an alien or temporary resident so that he can continue to live among you. Isn't it interesting? Over and over and over, God uses the alien as a standard, somebody that you're supposed to help, even to where if one of your own people's having a problem, help him the same way you would an alien. Isn't that interesting? About Deuteronomy 10, then I'll go back. Y'all knew these, right? You thought God just cared about corners of a field? Deuteronomy 10. Verse 18. Speaking of God. Verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no brides. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and, what's this? Loves the alien, giving him, what? Food and clothing. Let me ask you something. Out of the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, who should have known the law the best? The priest. Who's second best? The Levite. Who last? The Samaritan, right? But who applied the law? Who had a heart who was inclined towards God? What does God do? He gives to the needy food and clothing, especially to the alien. What's the point of the story? The whole point of the story is we have an expert in the law here. What must I do to be saved? He said, well, what do you read in the law? He was supposed to get from the law a heart that was inclined towards God. He was supposed to get from the law not the way that you harvest a field, but the way you care about your fellow man. The harvest of the field was a detail. It was a detail. When we read and all we see is all this stuff that we think binds people up, it was supposed to show them what was good to do. I said supposed to show them. Then why does 2 Timothy 3.16 say that all Scripture is useful today for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness? Perhaps it's supposed to show us what we're supposed to do. This parable, was it spoken for some other dispensation in time? Or is it spoken for us? Don't we apply the parable of the Good Samaritan to our lives, showing us that we're supposed to love one another, do the will of God? Don't we do that? Well, what's it based on? It was based on a thorough knowledge of the law that told him to do the same thing as a correction for somebody who was supposed to be an expert on the subject and wasn't living it. Sounds like the church could use that today. It does to me anyway. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and grape juice. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of Roberts? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Now the expert is saying things worthy of an expert. What was the law supposed to teach? Mercy on your fellow man. Guys like David understood this. Prophets like Hosea understood it. Prophets like Micah understood it. The people who don't understand it are filling our churches today. We either make it a standard that 
we live by that is showing our righteousness, which is wrong, or we throw it out and say it's obsolete. You do with it what you do with every other part of the Word. You let it form and shape your heart because God wants your heart to be inclined towards Him. You say, well, what about this? And what about... All those same things exist in the New Testament. What God is after is a heart that is inclined towards Him. In Psalm 82... We'll be done in just a minute. Can you all hang in there with me for a little while? Psalm 82, you hear a psalm that is never quoted from. How strange. I mean, I quote from it all the time. You tell me when's the last time you heard a sermon on this in your other church. Psalm 82. God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. How long will y'all... Love that? Use plural. It's y'all. How long will y'all defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Where did he get that idea? Well, we just read it in Deuteronomy 10, didn't we? That's what God does. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere men. Why? Because they are not doing what God asked them to do. The words were given to incline their heart to not only lean towards God, but act like God. Jesus chose you because He thinks you're capable of being like Him. And who was He just like? His Father. He said, the prince of this world is coming for me. But the world must learn. I love the Father and do exactly what He commands. And He chose you. Jesus chose you because He thought you would do exactly what He commands. All of this Word has one purpose in mind, to get a heart that's after God so that you recognize people that are on the right road headed the wrong direction. So that you are ready with oil and wine to bandage wounds. So that you are ready to snatch those who are half dead back on the right road. John 10, Jesus used this very same psalm to defend Himself. They said, You, a mere man, claim to be God's Son. That's blasphemy. He said, It's not blasphemy if I do the work of my Father. And the miracles that I'm doing here, they show that. They show that I'm doing the work of the Father. If you don't believe me, believe the miracles. The whole purpose of the law was to get people to do the work of God. Deuteronomy 4 said, If they would do that, all the nations would look and say, there has never been a nation this wise with this much understanding whose God is with them when they pray. Isn't that amazing? So is the problem with the Word or with the people who don't live the Word? Funny, there's not much difference between the New and the Old Testament then, is there? Same problem exists in the church today. Is the problem with Jesus' teachings or the people who don't live Jesus' teachings? Before we throw stones at Judaism and say, oh, how bound up they are and all of those things, we better take a good look at ourselves, huh? How many people do you think you can go to the Sugarland Mole today right after they've walked out of church and smack across the face and watch them turn the other cheek? Texas, careful, they're armed. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. Now, while it may seem like I'm teaching on the law today, <laughs> what I'm trying to get us to do 
is begin to incline our hearts towards God and see beyond just the letters on the page, what is it trying to show us? You think when it says, don't make a graven image, what God really cares for you today is for you not to go out, take some stone, chisel it away so that it looks like a God? You really think that that's what He's trying to get you to do? Might you try to justify yourself in some legalistic righteousness by saying, I've never done that? Meanwhile, you got a TV up there filled with all kind of horrible things that you gaze at for hours. Hmm. Is it possible to read the letter and miss the Spirit? Of course it is. In Deuteronomy 6, we see this command. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all of His decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Again, commands are not given to beat them down. It was given so that they would enjoy a long life. Hear, O Israel, be careful to obey so that it may go well with you. Why is He giving them to them? So it will go well with them. And so that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. God said in Deuteronomy 5, Oh! that they would be inclined, their hearts inclined after me. He was yearning for it. So he gives a prescription for it. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, He swore to your fathers. If your hearts aren't inclined in the right way, you need to do the same thing today that Israel was supposed to do then. The way the New Testament writers say this is you need to be renewed by the washing with the Word. He very well could have said you need to be renewed by having the Word impressed on your heart, tied on your hands. You need to talk about it when you walk along the road and when you lay down. Why did God say teach these to your children? because He wanted the next generation to be inclined towards Him. It's our job to get this stuff in us, to change our natural state which is inclined the wrong way. Anybody that's ever participated in athletics knows why you drill something over and over and over. It's not because in your fourth season of your senior year, in the last game, you don't remember the play to run off tackle. It's because you need an inclination to do it without even thinking about it. We call it being in the zone. You need to be able to do it. You've repped it. You've repped it. You've repped it. You need to be able to do it just as an instinct. This is what the Word was in their culture. It's what it's supposed to be in ours. You live it and breathe it so that when you're having a bad day with your friends, you don't even have to think about smiling. It just happens because it's been your practice all of your life because you are living it in the Word over and over and over. Well, your natural instinct is not towards something that is away from God, but now is inclined towards God. That's what His Word does. It reshapes you. He said, start with the children. 
He knew if he could do it with the children, it would change forever. Go back sometime. Read Genesis 18. It's the 15th verse. It tells you why God chose Abraham. Because he would teach his children. God's not investing in you just because you're a wonderful human being. He's investing in you because you are supposed to be changing the earth by everything that comes into contact with you and everything that you produce forever. That's the legacy that you'll leave. Incidentally, let's turn to Ephesians 4. I was thinking about Justin and Lynn being here. The last time Justin was here, Lynn was still pregnant. She was in her eighth month and Hannah was not yet on the earth. What a beautiful little girl. Justin preached a fantastic message about the power of your will. Man's free will being the most powerful force on the earth. In his message, he read from Ephesians 4. Now, that's a creative way to introduce Ephesians 4. What I'm reading has nothing to do with your free will. But that's why I was on the Scripture. I was thinking about Justin today. In Ephesians 4, starting in verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Can you see in that that you're being taught to change the inclination of your heart towards something that's good? Now watch what he says. This is New Testament to a Greek-based church, the Ephesians. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Where did he get that idea? Could it be the ninth commandment? Don't bear false witness? Could it be that? Hmm. We're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer. You're kidding me. Where did he get that idea? Why is he telling them that? Why not just say, Ephesians, you have the Holy Spirit, be led by Him. End of book. Why not? Why was this not a one-sentence letter to the church? Because we need to worship in spirit and truth. And if just left to the leading of the Spirit, you go tell a five-year-old kid, be led by the Spirit. Our natural inclination is not towards what is right. It has to be reshaped so that you can feel the Spirit, so that He has something to lead you with. Can God make up for your lack? Of course He can. But why is the Apostle telling them, do not steal? Why is the Apostle telling them, speak truthfully? Is the Holy Ghost not telling them that? Of course He is. Now what you don't see here is if you steal, you'll be stoned. What you don't see here is if you don't speak truthfully, I'm going to kill you. There's no penalty associated. But the right things that were said 1,600 years earlier are still right. That doesn't change. Must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Uh-oh! Where did that idea come from? Have something to share with those who are in need. That's what Israel was supposed to do with their harvest. That's just one facet of the law. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Oh, now here we get to it. 
and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Do you mean that if you resist the righteous standards that are not there to show you how far you fall short, that's one function, but it's not the only function, they're there to show you the good that you can do, that God has empowered you to do. Do you mean that it could grieve the Holy Spirit if you don't then do that good? Of course it could. Of course it could. I intended to teach on Ezekiel 36, and I'm out of time. But let me tell you, Ezekiel 36 is looking forward to a day. It's written 500 years before Jesus and is looking forward to the day where the inclination of the people's heart that He calls stone would change. They would be given a new heart, one made of flesh. What does that mean? Pliable. Stone, not pliable. Flesh, pliable. And that God's Spirit would move them to keep His decrees and laws. So then what was the intent? So that they would be empowered to do the good that God called them to do. When I was thinking about this, the law without the Spirit, <laughs> you know, just seeing the good that you're supposed to do, but not having the Spirit, it's like a drunk guy who leaves... Oh, can I talk about that? Yeah, like a drunk guy who leaves a party, right? He goes and gets in a rowboat to cross a lake. He pushes the boat off, or so he thinks, and he paddles all night long, and he is just working. And the next morning, he's discouraged, and as the sun comes up, He's shaken out of his stupor and he looks and the boat was still tied to the dock the whole time. The law points you in the right direction, but the weakness in it, if there's a weakness, is yours. You don't have the power to do it. What the Spirit does is He breaks that bond of the flesh that binds you and He empowers you to get where the law is pointing. That's what the Spirit does. It's Jesus' Spirit. He lived it perfectly and so He empowers you to live it perfectly. As I was pondering on the law, I don't know, I'm not an analogy guy, but I thought of several. Tourists who stand in awe and amazement, staring at something like the Greek pantheon, right? Greek pantheon. Nastiness. Horrible things done there. And yet, it's still there 2,000 years later. Still there. Why? Because it was built on a very good foundation. That's Greek, it's worldly, it's nasty. But the foundation was so good that it's still there today. The foundation in the Word is the law. Deuteronomy 13 says, even if somebody comes and does miracles, man, if they proclaim something other than what you've already heard, don't listen to them. That is the foundation that the rest of the Word is built on. But that's not enough. I wrote this. As an architect and master builder, God conceived of the building that is His people in its totality. He realized that His first consideration must be the ground on which it is to stand. It must have a solid foundation. Of course, no one can live in a house that consists only of a foundation. The law in, its, in and of itself is not enough. It's a foundation. A superstructure is needed. But without a proper foundation, the superstructure will not stand. God addresses the moral foundations of man by changing the inclination of our hearts and then He moves by His Spirit to build the rest of our lives and callings for His pleasure. We first start our walk by starting to get a profound idea of what is right and wrong. Then we start learning to be led by the Spirit in how to do that which we know is right. This builds our lives. It's what we call our callings. It's what we are. The nation of Israel was just a prototype 
who went first and now you've joined in their same promises, their same culture, their same likeness. You may have a different responsibility to the Word today than somebody in Amsterdam 200 years ago or somebody in Israel 2,000 years ago, but you do have a responsibility to it. I'm embarking on the journey to find out what that is. And right now, what's pushing me is to impress upon my children the good that they should know to do. Let's not sit here next year and not be able to quote 10, 15 statements out of the book of Deuteronomy. How shall we neglect something like that that the apostles had memorized? Why? Is it just because it's titled Old? Jesus is old. Ancient days. He's old. I want the inclination of my heart to change. His Spirit's empowering me to do that. I felt His Spirit doing worship in here, pushing me. only reason I didn't call some of you out by name is because I, told, I feel like He told me not to. Again, that's the leading of His Spirit. You know what I heard over and over and over? It was not a, these are my righteous laws and you all fall short. It was, this is righteousness and you can do it. He was saying, be reconciled. Be reconciled. Somebody in here doesn't feel like they can be reconciled like God is distant from them on a blazing mountain in the distance and maybe it's good for somebody else but not for them. That somebody's already come. He laid His hand upon God and upon you and He's made peace. It's your job to take advantage of that reconciliation. It's your job to walk in that freedom, to do the good that He's called you to do. Stand up and let's pray.